Garlic pressing the wrong button. This week, the biggest political motion of the year is delayed and unraveling because one guy pressed the wrong button. That's how our democracy works. Plus, we have more data about who gets transit fines, and the data is surprising to no one. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, officially a nominee in the Canadian Online Publishing Awards for Best Podcast. So... Pat on the back. Yeah, I mean, honestly, at this point... I was introducing myself as an award-nominated podcast last night at the <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell event. So, as you should. Yeah, uh, I've already been reaping the rewards. We at Speaking Municipally haven't had a discussion about when the trophy arrive, who gets it. Send in your tweets and say Troy should, but you know, it's it's up in the air. We can decide that later. We'll find out the winners in November. So Yes, we have not yet cross won. Cross your fingers for us. Uh, I don't think there's any sort of voting. It's a... Jury, jury panel so yeah. yeah there's nothing you can do other than listen to the podcast and then tell your friends yeah really influence because i think download numbers do actually play a component in the judging definitely another piece of news before we get on to the rapid fire segment is that we're doing a live show at startup edmonton week with counselors hamilton and knack yeah so we're going to be one of the featured events during edmonton startup week we're going to be at startup edmonton on 104th street we're going to record Our usual show, except they're going to have two guests and we're going to grill them all about politics and tech. So, Mac, when you were confirming the counselors as guests, did you ask them if they listened to the podcast? I asked them two things. I said, do you know that we have a podcast about municipal politics? And have you heard Troy talk about things on the podcast? And then would you like to come and chat with him in person? There has been only one scenario where I've been censored on this podcast, (laughs) and that was when... I was aggravating Carrie Diot a little too much. And you're like, we can't afford this. So beyond that, I don't know that you can control me. And the counselors have to know that. This is a challenge for me. Can I get them to take off their microphones and walk (laughs) out of the room? Tune into the event. It's October 24th at Startup Edmonton. At 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you can come be our live audience. Yeah, it's a free event. I promise it won't be as bad as I just let on. I hope, maybe. It'll be constructive. On to the rapid fire segment. The city has begun a $750,000 adaptive signaling pilot project on 101st Street between 103 and 111th Ave. The pilot will use infrared pedestrian cameras and traffic cameras and then use smart technology to adapt signal timings to the current load and mode of people looking to cross the intersection. This represents a massive shift forward to accessibility and inclusion in the city, as the blind or differently abled may have struggled to find or press the beg button to cross the road before. Now, with the new infrared cameras, they can simply drop to their knees and mime begging actions to allow the gods of roving metal beasts to permit them passage. Luck may be running out for the Baccarat Casino, which has sat empty and vacant for three years. The Cates Group has asked for a demolition permit to demolish the building, which some have called a blight. Many have asked the question of what will replace the casino, but no one has asked the question anyway other than rhetorically. There are some universal truths in the world that people are born understanding, and every person in the city who has accepted taking a risk into their heart knows and understands the ineffable truth. There will be a surface parking lot there, and it will be covered with little tiny rocks. A University of Alberta executive has resigned over a billboard that extolled the virtues of climate change, including... Quote, beefier barley that would grow larger and with less water. 
The University of Alberta president, David Turpin, who could be seen counting down the days until June 2020 when his contract is up and he doesn't have to deal with budget cuts or obtuse ads, said that he reluctantly accepted the resignation and that clearly the climate around discussing climate change has changed and this ad didn't climb the chain of command for approval, otherwise it would have been changed. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This week, we get to tell you about LitFest, Canada's original nonfiction festival, which runs from October 17th to 27th, right here in Edmonton. Venues across the city will play host to authors and presenters from home and afar, giving their perspectives on true crime, historic mysteries, gender identity, mental health, food culture, and many topics in between. You can see a full list of the presenters and get individual tickets as festival passes are now sold out at litfestalberta.org. And if you use offer code APNROCKS19, you'll get $5 off your ticket. I gotta say, last week on the podcast, we were slagging on our friends a little bit, Councillor Aaron Paquette. We, we slagged on him a little bit for his comments on calcium chloride. Right. We knew it was going to be an interesting meeting this week, but yeah. maybe not as interesting. Last Saturday, his staff literally came to my house and accosted me for... <laughs> uh, it was at a barbecue that they were invited to, but I was accosted for uh, my commentary around Councillor Paquette being last week's knob of the week. Okay. Calcium chloride is back this week, as we knew it would be. And are you suggesting there's a new knob of the week? Well... Not exactly. I think that's going to be up to the listener okay. to decide whether this is knob-like actions or just mispressing of the knob to vote. So what happened this week on the calcium chloride debate? Was anything new on the actual debate floor? Were any new topics really brought up this week? Not to my knowledge. I mean, this is an issue that had been delayed a number of times and now had was supposed to be decided this week. It got punted to this week. A special city council meeting in place of Urban Planning Committee to once and for all, in theory, uh, decide on whether or not we were going to let administration go with their plan, which is use the right tool for the right place at the right time, or whether they were going to put their foot down as council and say, there shall be no calcium chloride. And we didn't get to any of that because something happened. This is a story which is my favorite type of story. It's where procedural gummickry has derailed the entire process. <laughs> Councillor Cartmel had made a motion in typical Councillor Cartmel style, which had several parts and a lot of various degrees of engineering and specificity that like council voted down. He lost that motion, but the crux of it was he didn't want calcium chloride or salt, and he wanted those significantly reduced. That motion failed to amend the calcium chloride plan. Sure. Andrew Knack made a different motion, which was just, you know, city the city can continue using salt, all the other tools, try to use mechanical means to get down to bare pavement, mm -hmm. but no calcium chloride. We're done for next year on calcium chloride. And that motion passed 7-6. So at that point, there's the main motion on the floor. It's to do the stuff, and it's been amended by Andrew Knack to say, do the stuff, but without calcium chloride. Which sounds encouraging. That sounds like we're finally going to get some progress. Absolutely. So, council says it's time to vote on this main motion. And it fails 7 to 6. Curious. Uh, very curious. After which, Councillor Cartmel speaks up and says, I pressed the wrong button. So maybe you can explain for listeners, what button is he talking about? When council votes, it's a digital system. There's They each have tablets in front of them that, you know, says the motion and has their vote on it. So they press one of two buttons. Vote yes, vote no. Council I assume clearly labeled. 
I would imagine so. <laughs> Uh, and this has happened in the past where counselors have pressed the wrong button and sometimes a revote just happens. When it's an issue as contentious as this one, there's a little bit of skepticism there because when it's a 7-6 vote, not voting your actual conscience, you reveal the other counselor's vote. And then if you say, actually, I'm going to take back these and change the result of the vote, right. nothing might ever get done if this was a legitimate game that counselors could play. Right. So the mayor, visibly frustrated at that point, he said, like, look, I don't want to deal with any of this right now. It's lunchtime. We're going to postpone this. Um, he made a motion to postpone the business to next week, and they deal with it all there, and then went for lunch and that was it council comes back after lunch and a couple counselors aren't there counselor paquette and nickel both aren't there among some others uh that were said oh we got some stuff to do we're not really sure how much time we have because this was supposed to be a short supposed to be done by lunch so without council on board there was a lot of debate about what they should do next John Zadok, for example, friend of the podcast, he said that he really wanted to move forward because he wanted his constituents wanted something to happen. Right. Um, so like he was advocating for just voting on it. The mayor sort of logically said, we're in a split vote scenario. How the procedure actually has to work is they have to first rescind the motion to postpone it to next week. The prevailing side always has to do that. In the case, the motion to postpone to next week was unanimous. So it was easy to do that. The mayor voted against the original motion, right? He was one of the dissenters. Yeah. Yes. Um, and assuming they rescind the postponement, someone from the prevailing side, so the calcium chloride supporting side, right. would have to move reconsideration of that vote to allow Cartmel to vote differently. Right. The key thing is that it's not to just redo and switch Cartmel's vote. It's to allow a revote where you have two counselors missing and also additional information because you now know how everyone wanted to vote. Right. So there's the potential that, like, maybe the vote doesn't actually go as people think it's going to go, especially with those two counselors being absent. And then maybe we are in an even bigger pickle and this procedural gimmickry has now caused us to do something that council doesn't want to do. The other negative with doing it right then was you had two counselors absent and counselors really like to have their vote on the record unless of course you're counselor mike nickel who you are strategically <laughs> absent from votes that you don't want on the record right um so so this got punted again yeah is the long and short of it the end of the day john zadok did get his way a little bit okay they rescinded the motion to postpone to next week in order to put the motion original motion about calcium chloride back on the floor and then postpone it to next. So the original one or Andrew Nax amended? Uh, Andrew Nax amended motion. Got so it. rather than having to postpone to next week and then vote to reopen and redebate it, they instead said, okay, we're going to rescind the postponement. We're going to reopen the debate. We're going to put this on the floor and then we're going to postpone it again just so that there's a motion to debate. It was very much a symbolic gesture that had symbolism that no one in the entire city cares about. Except you found this quite interesting. The thing that I find fascinating about when counselors do this is 
one, they seem to assume that like anyone in the city understands the process sure. because like even you and I at some point and the mayor was asking questions of the clerk, like how exactly does this work? Right. It's very much esoteric policy wonkish stuff. And in the moment, I imagine it must be somewhat difficult to think, well, okay, now there's more information available. People know who's voted which way. Like you're maybe not thinking about all that. You're just frustrated that this thing didn't just get finished. Yeah. Especially as the mayor who's seeing... A slate of candidates, and I got some heat for mentioning this <laughs> on Twitter, this. but roughly the rumor mill has basically everyone in the entire city is running for mayor in 2021. Kind of like the last time. It's just that we Except know the names we, of these people. Yeah, and this time the people who are rumored to run are qualified. Right. Yeah. Um. So as Don Iveson, you got to be sitting there and thinking, this is a room of people who are all trying to leverage this motion for political bonuses Mm. two years down the line. Because in 21, people are going to remember the calcium chloride issue. Probably only this issue. This and LRT is probably going to be the big things that council actually did that people will remember. So there's a lot of posturing going on in this room. And that's why you have people like John Zadig saying, we need to get this motion back on the floor and I need to do this immaterial thing. It's always fascinating to me to see councillors really push for this procedural jargon to go first as if anyone would look at any of that, much less their votes. People, unless Global News specifically says which councillor voted which way, right? people have no idea how councillors voted. They're just going to remember whether or not calcium chloride was approved or not. I hope when the election comes around, people remember more than just calcium chloride and LRT, but that remains to be seen. So this is now on the agenda for... Tuesday again next week. It is a full agenda. I looked at it this afternoon. So it's not just going to be this issue. So what do you think is going to happen? I don't think there will be any debate on calcium chloride. I think it's going to be a 7-6 to remove calcium chloride from the plan. We know that like counselors are sort of on side. I don't see anyone changing their position between now and then other than Cartmel who voted wrong. (laughs) Right. Uh, And he was very apoplectic during the meeting he said like look i'm not playing games here i just i pressed the wrong button and normally i do excuse counselors for this everybody makes mistakes but on a seven six vote of literally the biggest issue and the only thing on the agenda that day yeah um like the whole reason you're there it's you double check you're pressing the right button i think um but I don't think he'll be pressing the wrong button on big issues anytime soon again. No, that's a lesson you remember. Let's move on from calcium chloride to we talked about transit fares a couple weeks ago when Aaron Paquette had made his motion to reevaluate transit fares. And you had dropped some commentary saying, look, when I'm on the uh, train, I see transit offers disproportionately targeting certain subsets of people. And we have data to support that now. Yeah, I felt afterward, I said to you, uh, you know, make sure I didn't sound like an idiot on that podcast because, you know, it's anecdotal and sort of man on the street interviews are never that interesting to me. So I was very happy this week to see that we've now got some data on this. And the data says that since 2009, Indigenous peoples who make up just 6% of our city's population, according to the 2016 federal census, have been either the most or second most ticketed or warned racial group on ETS making up an average of 43.8% of tickets and 44.5% of warnings where race is recorded each year. So that's a significant overrepresentation in tickets and warnings uh, for that group. 
What do you make of this? I mean, I was completely unsurprised by this data because, like you said, I have the exact same anecdotal experience on the trains where if you have an enforcement officer walking onto the train, he almost never gets to me because he will be walking up to a certain type of person and then usually will apprehend one person before he gets to me and then get off the train. Right. Yeah, no, like you say, not surprising at all. I think it's good that the data is now available and that people can see that this is actually happening. You know, in the in the Edmonton Journal article that you'll find in the show notes, Dusty Legrand, who's the director of the Fair for Youth program at iHuman, um, he's also an associate director at iHuman Youth Society. He said this very, very commonly known within Indigenous people. Many of us have stories of negative experiences with transit enforcement. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the data that is available now and the uh, sort of FOIP request that, you know, we talked about previously, these things are just now allowing us to know for sure that our anecdotal uh, experiences are, are true. So also overrepresented are homeless people or people who are with mental health issues. These are groups of people that are disproportionately targeted and are also generally less able to afford the fine. That's right. We know indigenous people are more likely to experience homelessness and poverty and and mental health issues and some of the things that you're talking about. Some of that is from you know, residential schools and other factors. There's a whole swath of systemic issues that was covered in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The transit fines, $250, isn't cheap, especially when typically the person who is on public transit in Edmonton, because Car City, is usually a person who can't afford to own a car because generally driving a car is so much better in our city, with some caveats. And guys, I'm a transit advocate, okay? Get off my back. The fine for evading a fare, $250. The fine for parking wrong, $35 to $90. This is the crux of Aaron Paquette's motion, and it's nice that we have a social justification in addition to the financial justifications before that just like this is clearly we're doing something wrong here. Right. And it kind of makes me reconsider that city auditor report that said that we don't have an effective system for fair evasion. I mean, I guess that means they were strictly looking at it from a financial point of view. Right. And it makes you wonder if perhaps the auditor should be including some of these other factors in the work that they do. And, you know, so it's good for Paquette to be making this uh, uh, such a big issue now because it seems much less contentious than make transit free for everybody. There's a very clearly supported by evidence problem here. Yeah. And I would make the claim that this does evidence that we don't have effective policing of fair evasion because... We know the demographics of the city of Edmonton. These are overrepresenting a specific demographic. If we were properly policing fare evasion with the intention of making sure every fare evader got a ticket, mm-hmm. we would not see this racial breakdown That's in true. the tickets issued. Yep. So part of me looks at this and I see this is fair enforcement taking an almost political stance. But we saw another example of that just last week when the climate strikes were on, where you had disproportionately students and university students walking down, busing down, training down to the legislature to show up and say, hey, climate change, pretty big deal, guys. Immediately after, as the strikes were dispersing around three and four, there were fair police at the escalators in underground LRT stations doing mass checks to make sure everyone on the platform had proof of payment. Right. You and I have talked, we very rarely see fair popo when we're riding the LRT. 
pretty much like hockey games or, you know, big events like that. Yeah. That struck me as this was almost, this was pretty gross. This was a political move because we have people protesting a specific aspect of the government. Right. And when you police fares right at that moment, yeah, one could make the argument, yeah, we shouldn't be fare evading. But you can also say you make a choice of when you enforce if you're not enforcing all the time. Yeah. And to enforce directly after a protest when people are returning from the protest, it seems punitive to the people who showed up and asserted their democratic rights. I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, but no, I think I you're absolutely love the image. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that there's a large population of people. And so you can sort of understand the psychology there. Like, hey, we probably going to find some people who don't have tickets because there's so many people getting on the train. But especially when they're there asserting their democratic right about climate change, uh, you're right. It feels a bit uncomfortable. Also a bit uncomfortable is the city of Edmonton, according to the Vital Signs report, which came out this year and and it had some uh, interesting points of data. This. That's right. The Vital Signs study done by the Edmonton Community Foundation and the Edmonton Social Planning Council. We've talked about it in the ads before, but now we're actually talking about it, which is kind of cool. It paints a pretty pessimistic picture, says the Edmonton Journal, with only 55% of residents rating their quality of life as very good or excellent, which surprised me, actually. I thought that was quite a low percentage. I like Edmonton. Good quality of life in Edmonton. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Especially, you know, coming from the, uh, the, you know, sort of the tech community and and the amount of uh, focus I've placed lately on economic development. Like people talk about Edmonton and Calgary and Alberta more generally as, you know, that's one of the big factors we have over other jurisdictions is that really high quality of life. So that was a bit surprising. Uh, Another one that was about job opportunities in the city. And the Vital Signs report found that 49% believe there are adequate job opportunities, which is down from 53% last year and 76% in 2017. That's a drop. So any kind of economic rebound you thought we might be having doesn't seem to be matching up, at least in this perception-based Yeah, but these are people's perceptions of job availability, not the actual job availability. Right. Another thing that jumped out to me is that social isolation was a component of the report, and it said that Roughly 23% feel socially isolated, uh, the highest number since the question was posed in 2016, which is always fascinating for me because those who know me well, I do a lot of stuff and I organize a lot of events. Treats of pizza. But mm, treats of pizza and barbecues and going to musicals. Literally this afternoon, though, like I was just sitting on my couch after staying out very late last night and then coming home and feeling sick because I had stayed out so late. Yeah. I clearly had a very social week. By all objective measures, I'm doing fine socially. But this afternoon, I was just like really crushed, feeling socially isolated in my house alone, typing on my computer. And I think I am able to assess the situation, realize I'm not being rational right now and know that like my life is going to get better tomorrow. Yeah. For those who are not as extroverted as I am and doesn't don't have all those connections, like I felt really bad. That would be crushing if the next day you felt the same way. That one resonated with me as a really serious issue because I put in a ton of effort and I still get those feelings. This 23% high number, that's really concerning to me. 
And it's exacerbated for a lot of people by social media. That's another thing that's in their support. It's 51% believe social media contributes to improving social connections, which means basically half of people don't. And there's lots of talk about FOMO and, you know, you get to see these nicely curated pictures in Instagram or whatever you're looking at, and it can make you feel bad about yourself. It can make you feel like you're not uh, living the life that some of the people you follow are. So, you know, it doesn't help that um, we've got now these tools that were purportedly to help us build social connections that might do quite the opposite. The other interesting commentary in the report was that the vast majority of Edmontons felt that the city had an adequate number of green spaces in the community. And I thought this was a really fascinating... You can never have too much green space. Absolutely. And in fact, when I'm feeling really low, I can walk out and just go to Mill Creek Ravine. It always makes me feel better. Right. Um, Even in the crux of winter, because it's a winter city. As we look outside and see the cold... Always remind Edmontonians, winter is fine. I thought that was really fascinating because I don't know that that's true for all of Edmonton. Edmonton broadly has an average very high number of green space because we've got this massive urban forest in the River Valley. Right. But you go to specific communities like Oliver, like some areas of Boyle Macaulay and the downtown core area, and there's a dearth of green spaces. And those are also the places where most people live right density wise yeah Uh, i mean most people live in the suburbs but you know density wise that's the highest proportion of people to land so i thought it was really fascinating that um it's presenting this report as you know edmonton overall feels like there's a vast abundance of green spaces which doesn't highlight the problem because a lack of green spaces is a really significant mental health challenge in downtown right Last thing that I caught from the Edmonton Journal article on this was end of the world. I thought this was... No, Keeler Point viewing area. I know, but they still called it end of the world in the article. (laughs) I thought that was super interesting. They just said the study also highlighted the city's efforts to ban conversion therapy. So positive thing. And making the informal lookout known as the end of the world safer. Like, really? People are happy about that? I guess they're happy about the safety part and not the name. I don't know that people are actually happy about the safety part. You talk to people who liked End of the World. The danger was... That was the appeal, right? Yeah, it was... You're a bunch of teens, tweens, and you're sitting on a rock and you're risking falling off. And that's the appeal. I don't know that anyone goes there anymore now that it's been sterilized, except Instagrammers. Um, We'll move on to one final topic today. Uh, Transit safety... We invested $21 million into extra security popo for the transit stations to basically have a 24-7 presence in all transit LRT stations and then additional presence at some bus and other transit centers across the city. And it's a success, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the records, the data shows that there's less mischief and that there have been some positive impacts of having this extra security on site, both peace officers, police officers and contracted security. There was counselors talking about, you know, the fact that you just have more eyes available now to see things and it so it discourages uh, disorderly conduct and other kinds of uh, issues of safety. You know how you get more eyes on transit? Get more riders. Make it free. <laughs> um The union obviously was not happy about that. They think that there's issues with some of the contracted security. That's a whole other debate. Uh, The general consensus, I think, from council this week was that there's more to do on this. And that's what Councillor Esslinger uh, basically said. You know, she said, I'm concerned that a perception of safety is still not where it needs to be. And she was talking about some of the women she's heard from. And she says they try to be home by a certain time. They try to go to certain places where they feel safe, maybe where there's more people. Yeah. Yeah. 
I can empathize with all of this. I don't typically feel unsafe on transit as, you know, a 20 something reasonably fit white male. Right. Um, but I have felt unsafe. So if I'm feeling unsafe, there are definitely some marginalized members of our community that are definitely having it worse than me. Yep. This is a problem overall, because if people aren't feeling safe on transit, they're going to drive their car. I have plenty of people who I've talked to and I'm like, you should just take the train. Like, I don't feel safe on the train, so I'm going to drive to downtown, which is a really significant problem. Definitely. You can't combat that with frequency. You need to actually materially solve the problem. Whether throwing more security at the transit is the solution here, I don't necessarily know that I agree with that. A lot of it could be station design as well. A lot of our stations are pretty inhospitable and encouraging. There's a lot of nooks and crannies and it's not like open and welcoming. It's even worse now. I use Bay Enterprise Square. That's my home station. And uh, a number of the stations downtown have these giant white walls uh, for construction that's going on around the escalators and the elevators and things like that. It makes sight lines almost impossible. It's like you're you're scrunched up against a, a tiny part of the stairs now. Like it feels very, it feels really unsafe because you can't see anything. You know, there's this big barrier in your way. Um, so that's definitely an issue, both construction as well as just the design of those stations. Over the next year, the city says they're going to install retractable bus shields, you know, this report also talked about um, bus and transit center security. Um, they're assigning another 18 transit peace officers to bus and LRT beats and another six to be hired next year. So as you say, more security, maybe not enough, but at least it's encouraging that the money we've spent on this so far is starting to have some positive effects. It's really interesting because this is a double faceted problem. There's the public perception of transit safety, but there's also the transit operator perception of mm -hmm. transit safety. And as a passenger on a bus... If I see a bus driver with a bus shield, I feel less safe on yeah. that bus because yeah. why does that driver need a bus shield? Right. Of course, as a driver, I feel much more safe with the bus shield because it is a shield. Uh, so that's going to be a really interesting balancing act because we need to protect our trans drivers who we have seen through previous reporting. Stabbing and assault is not an out of the question occurrence. Unfortunately on not. So like we absolutely have to protect our operators how we balance that with making additional public perception safety improvements. That's going to be a tough problem that I don't have to deal with because I lost the election. <laughs> uh, one final topic we'll mention on briefly in our slow burn segment, which making its triumphant return. We talked previously when Julie was guest hosting and Mac and I as well about childcare at City Hall and a pilot's moving forward. Yeah, so for the spring next year, there's going to be childminding services available at City Hall to allow um, public meetings to move ahead and to have parents who might want to speak at those meetings participate. So that's an encouraging thing. Like everything in Edmonton, it's a pilot. So I guess we'll see how that goes. It'll be a year-long pilot and it will service um, during public city meetings. It could run up to eight hours. Yeah, and the cost associated with this is about forty-eight grand for staffing, and that there'll be some renovation costs to you know make a space uh, between twenty-five hundred and five thousand dollars for furniture and equipment. So it's a relatively cheap in terms of pilot projects, uh, which I mean, cool. Like this is a thing where. I don't know that there's anyone who's really disagreeing with this. It's definitely worth trying. The other interesting change in addition to the child mining is just that minors will now have an opportunity to speak early uh, on agenda items, 
which is quite interesting. Yeah, and we've talked about that before. I don't think anyone should be allowed to speak at city council. We've talked about this in previous episodes, and we'll we'll get to it again in another future episode. We don't have time to talk about that. What we do have time to talk about is the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, of which we're a proud member. And this week, we want to highlight This Is Adulting, a podcast about figuring out how to be an adult. And as a self-professed adult, I can say, you know, adulting's pretty cool. It's a thing that you want to be able to do. This show will teach you all about how to be an adult. In the most recent episode, Jack, Danny, and Lindsay rant about some frustrating topics and finish up a quick quiz about what pisses them off. I don't know about you, but like as an adult, there's a lot of things that yeah. cheese me off. Yeah, um, they come up all the time. Yeah, on the podcast even. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever ranted on this show before. I'm not sure. Maybe in the archives we could find one. But that's all for this week. Remember, October 24th, Speaking Municipally Live show. We're going to keep plugging that until you're sick of hearing about it. And if you're listening in the archives, October 24th, 2019, what are we going to do? You can't come anymore. It's now in the past. Uh, But until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.